Illusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism, the dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion, where science ideas bounce around like ions in a hot gas plasma. Sit back and relax while we administer your weekly dose of nourishing science goodness. I'm Aaron Cook, and on this edition we'll feature earworms, those nasty tunes that you can't get out of your head, and cola-powered mobile phones. First up, here's the news with Ian Wolfe. Holland, there's a new kind of pork. No, it's not long pork. It's pork in a test tube. They're taking stem cells from the muscles of pigs and growing them in the laboratory to make ethical meat. The Dutch scientists have been growing pork at Maastricht University since 2006. So far, the texture of the meat is described by biologist Mark Post. It's sort of like a scallop, firm but a little squishy and moist. That's because the lab meat has 20% less protein than conventional meat. And sadly, the lower protein means the taste won't be anywhere near the same as pork. Basically, they've only made strips of meat about one centimetre long. To make a small pork chop, they estimate it would take about 30 days in the lab to grow all the little one centimetre strips. To make this commercially viable, they suggest they might be able to sell the meat ground up for hamburgers, sausages and chicken nuggets. The question is, would people eat this? And the answer that the Dutch researchers come back with is, people eat sausages, so they'll eat anything. The barrier for some people might be that they still need animal blood for the nutrient soup that bathes the cultured meat, although the in vitro meat consortium is researching vegetable-based alternatives. Of course, if you're going to eat a manufactured product that's pretending to be meat, then perhaps you do at least as well with a vegetable-based alternative. In the future, Post suggests that fish stem cells could be produced that would make healthy omega-3 fatty acids, which could be mixed in with the lab-produced pork instead of the usual saturated fats found in livestock meat. Other groups in the US, Scandinavia and Japan are also researching ways to make meat in the laboratory, but the Dutch project is currently the most advanced. NASA ran a project to grow lab meat for astronauts, but gave it up and decided that astronauts should eat vegetarian meals instead. To commercialise the lab meat, they need giant bioreactors of the size they use to pasteurise milk. This could take up to a decade to get going. So, would it be kosher? Does it have a cloven hoof? And really, you might eat sausages, but would you eat meat from the lab? In the invertebrate world, there's a species that's gone two million years without sex. The fungus gardening ant from South America. Mocha... Mycosapurus smithii, discovered by Smith, reproduces without any males whatsoever. This means all the ants are clones of the queen ant, grown from her unfertilised eggs. The ants tend farms inside their nests that they fertilise with leaves and dead insects to harvest fungus to feed the baby ants. So they're a sort of leaf-cutting ant and a farmer ant. So when you say 
that a sexually reproducing species has evolved to not sexually reproduce, you're going against a lot of the basic tenets of evolutionary biology. So they really had to check thoroughly that there were no males or that it wasn't just a temporary thing because there are some sexually reproducing species that can reproduce without males but usually don't because of all the benefits of mixing genes and error correction and competition. So to be sure that the males weren't just hidden, they dissected some of the ant queens and looked in the sperm storage vessels to see that they were empty, which they were. Otherwise, you know, they might have produced a few males, gotten inseminated, and then killed off the males. But that's not what was happening. And I thought, okay, it, what is it that's causing them to not produce males? Maybe it's some defect, you know, something's going on. So they tried using antibiotics to see if bacteria were stopping males being born. When that didn't work, they tried changing the fungus that they were farming to hatch out some male ants, but that didn't work either. The males have been gone for so long that the ants that the ant queen's reproductive organs have faded and shrunk. So what could the evolutionary advantages be? Possibly, asexual reproduction could lead you to avoid the need to find a mate and the efforts associated with mating, according to the researchers. It may also help keep the peace in colonies if the ants all smell the same because they're genetically identical and there's no sexual competition. So they looked at when this ant deviated from similar fungus-growing ants in the same regions, and it seems to be about 2 million years ago. So they're not sure at what stage in the 2 million years that they stopped producing males, but that's when they became genetically different. Anna Himmler, a research associate at the University of Arizona, said that she thinks that the current queens wouldn't be able to mate even if a male suddenly arrived because it's been so long and their reproductive organs have changed so much. The ants range from northern Mexico to Argentina. So two million years without sex, maybe sex isn't that important in evolution after all. Without any males, however, are these ants ever going to get rid of a spider that comes into the nest? (laughs) (laughs) There's news on the net of a cola-powered mobile phone from Nokia, or at least a sugar-powered concept phone put together by a designer. They have promotional shots of it with a popular cola brand, but any sugar water will do. Ideally, glucose dissolved in water. It gets turned into electricity and more water. The phone looks like a hip flask with buttons and a screen. Basically, an enzyme that's proprietary takes hydrogen ions off the glucose and the electrons go through the wire up to the battery and the hydrogen goes over a membrane, combines with oxygen in the other vessel and turns back into water. The new batteries will operate three to four times longer on a single charge than lithium batteries now in phones. And it's a green phone because the waste is just clean water. Adam Best from CSIRO was interviewed by IT News about this because he's an expert in batteries. And he said it wouldn't be powerful enough to run a phone. But reading his comments, it looks like he's assumed the phone runs off phosphoric acid, which is a major ingredient in cola. Phosphoric acid is what makes cola such a good liquid for cleaning metal. But Nokia and the Chinese designer Daisy Zeng do say clearly in all their press statements and on Daisy Zeng's website that the battery runs on the sugar in the cola. It's the glucose. Several companies have been working on sugar-powered batteries. Nokia was just the first to do a deal with a major cola brand for marketing the battery in a mobile phone. For example, a sugar 
biological fuel cell was announced by Sony in 2007. And back in 2003, we reported that Panasonic's Nanotechnology Research Laboratory in Kyoto was trying to use the same enzymes to power medical devices like pacemakers from the sugar in your blood. So just imagine, you've got a pacemaker, you've got something that releases insulin, or you've got some other little medical device in your body, and to recharge it, you just need to have a chocolate bar. Sweet. That was Diffusion News with Ian Wolfe. Ever had a song stuck in your head? That's an earworm. Patrick Ruby explores. Ever had a tune in your head that you just can't get rid of? It gets a bit annoying after a while, doesn't it? In case you hadn't heard the term before, these tunes are called earworms, or stuck song syndrome, or involuntary musical imagery, or brainworms. They're songs, tunes, or jingles that for some reason or another get stuck in your head. They are often simple and repetitive, and start off as catchy. You'll remember a chorus, or a bar, or a riff, sometimes even a whole song. But eventually they can get quite frustrating and annoying. Earworm is a direct translation of the German word Ohrwurm. Believe it or not, earworms have attracted scientific curiosity for several years, with psychologists practically falling over themselves to formulate theories to explain them. Starting in 2001, Dr. Kalaris began a series of unpublished studies on what was termed cognitive itch. Kalaris thought that music had certain properties analogous to biologically active chemicals, such as histamine. Certain music would cause a cognitive itch, comparable to a physical itch that you can get with allergic reactions. You scratch this itch by repeating the music mentally. But, as with a physical itch, mentally scratching it only makes it worse, and you end up repeating the tune in your head over and over again. Okay, that's enough now, I think. Empirical studies have been carried out to try and better understand the science behind earworms. Some results indicate that earworms are experienced more frequently by musicians, who are of course exposed to music more frequently than the rest of us, and people with obsessive-compulsive disorder, or OCD, who feel compelled to perform repetitive ritualistic behaviours which can end up making them feel quite anxious. So in order to understand earworms, perhaps a closer look at how we hear and remember sounds will give us a clue. Our memories are basically divided into two broad groups, which can overlap in some circumstances. They are procedural memories, the memories that you make when learning to drive a car, kick a football, or operate a microscope, and declarative memories, the memories you make when you try to recall a conversation, TV program, 
or a bunch of facts you had to memorize for an exam that probably kept you awake in bed sweating in abject terror the night before. Well, all memory involves converting an external sensory stimulus, something you see, feel, taste, smell, or hear, into a special chemical code stored in specialized neurons within our brains. Procedural memories are created and stored in the parts of our brain concerned with motor function, specifically the cerebellum. But declarative memories are a little more scattered and can be found in various parts of our brain. When a stimulus is first perceived by our eyes, ears, etc., the nerves in these structures relay it to the thalamus, a structure deep in the middle of our brain which acts as a kind of sorting centre. From here it can go to an area of higher processing, collectively known as the cerebral cortex, to make sense of what we have experienced. There are separate cortices, cortices being the plural of cortex, for sound, vision, touch, taste and smell. So where do memories come into it? Well, short-term memories are formed in an area of the brain called the hippocampus, which is part of a network of structures known as the limbic system. The limbic system sends information around the brain in a loop which attaches emotional responses and behavioural responses to certain memories, such as the terror of a final exam and the pleasure of a delicious ice cream. If memories become long-term, they are stored in their respective cortices. Sounds in the auditory cortex, vision in the visual cortex and its association cortices, and so on. If you want to dig up a memory, you use another part of your brain, the prefrontal cortex, also known as the working memory, to retrieve it from the appropriate cortex of long-term storage. It's retrieved often along with the emotional and behavioural response you created with it. How well you can retrieve memories depends on how well they were stored to begin with and how good the connections between the relevant parts of the brain are. Memories are impaired in amnesia and degenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's disease. And now, the part of the brain performed by <laughs> the brain. Yes. Neocortex frontal lobe. Brainstem! Brainstem! Hippocampus neural node, right hemisphere. So how on earth does all of this relate to earworms? Well, sorry to disappoint, but the answer is we just don't know yet. There are several theories floating about, though. Earworms could be information that was overlearnt, and somehow the memory retrieval pathways are activated more readily than they should be. It could also be due to a temporary lapse in thought suppression, so that the memories intrude on our thoughts when they're not supposed to. What's becoming clear now is that it goes beyond normal auditory memory and might involve more complicated long-term memory stores. We do, however, have some clues about what makes people more likely to experience an earworm. Two studies by C. Philip Beeman and Tim Williams, published recently in the British Journal of Psychology, have added some more pieces to the puzzle. One study asked 103 people, recruited from railway stations and parks in England, to recall and describe any catchy tunes that got stuck in their head. The other study recruited 25 people via an online advert to record their experience of earworms as they happened. And the results? 24% of earworms stopped people from performing other tasks, and 14% wasted people's time 
How annoying! The researchers found no evidence that musicians or people with OCD were more likely to suffer from earworms than the rest of us. People who found music important or were more receptive to music were more likely to experience earworms, whether they were actual musicians or not. The experience of obsessive-compulsive disorder is different from earworms. People didn't generally report any anxiety or annoyance with the earworms, and the earworms usually disappeared after a day, unlike some of the behavioural traits of OCD. In the first study, when people had to recall them, earworms were reported to last several hours each time. But in the second study, where they reported them as they happened, they only lasted a few minutes. Popular tunes are more likely to become earworms. The first study reported a mixture of pop songs and children's TV tunes, with Pink Floyd mentioned three times, Guns N' Roses four times, and Justin Timberlake five times. But it doesn't seem like there is anything inherent in a sound that will turn it into an earworm. So what can you do about them? Psychologist Daniel Wagner. Has highlighted an interesting paradox in his theory of ironic processes. The more you try to consciously ignore something, the more you actually think about the thing you're trying to ignore. You have to remember it in order to force yourself to forget it, if you know what I mean. Beeman and Williams agree. When trying to distract yourself, an earworm could last up to 44 minutes, but if you do nothing, it lasts only 22 minutes. So it seems that attempts to distract yourself can make it worse. You should just do nothing. So what's the next step? Beeman says that brain scanning studies would be the way to go to see if earworms activated the same areas of the brain that are used when people voluntarily recall music. So there you go. The next time an irritating song gets into your head, just remember, you might have worms. I have to confess, I suffer from earworms a lot, especially when you just you half hear a song on the radio and you think, "Oh, that sounds pretty good," and then just that one segment of it sticks in your head for days afterwards, and it's agonising. Well, what I don't like is when, of course, I've got the lyrics wrong, and I know I've got the lyrics wrong, and <laughs> it's going through my head, yeah. and and I I don't know what I'm actually even listening to in my own head. So you've practically made up a new song. Which is sometimes better than the original. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, the researchers、um, looking at earworms now have actually reported that they've been around. They've been recognised for a long time. It was actually Mark Twain who reported one of the first earworms back in the 1800s.、Um, but they believe we might be more susceptible to them now because of the bombardment of information we get and the the bombardment of of sound and noise and stimuli. We have with our modern communicative culture,、um, so they believe that even though we don't consider it to be anything that's medically significant, it is of scientific interest, and it is something that we're recognising more and more. And people are out there doing studies to it. I mean, I would suggest to people if you really have a problem with this, since if you think about things, you you can't stop thinking about them, and if you have trouble with the more passive Zen. Method. Then set yourself other things to not think about.、And、if you give yourself a big enough list of things to not think about, you'll be so busy thinking about not thinking about them that you'll forget the original thing that you didn't want to think about. 
<laughs> overwhelm the mechanism. Yes. I think they actually they had a look at one of the things in, in their study. They found that by listening to other music or by putting in another song or something, that's what most people uh, use to try and forget about their particular earworm. And whether it worked or not, we don't know. But That was Patrick Ruby and Ian Wolfe discussing earworms and their love of Justin Timberlake. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Diffusion at 2SCR.com. Brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast from www.diffusionradio.com. If you've been to a few weddings in your life, you've probably heard Packerbell's Canon in D minor. You might even agree that it's an earworm. On his YouTube channel Paravonian, Rob Paravonian discusses his theory that Pachelbel's canon is the root of all music. I'll leave you with this little story. It's about this piece of music. It's a very popular piece of music. I'm sure you all know it, but I'll sing the melody right now. Yeah, Pachelbel's canon in D. It was a big hit in the classical world, and I know this because I'm a geek. I know what you're thinking. It's like, Rob, you can't be a geek. You play guitar. You're so cool. Okay, you weren't thinking that, but I was. Um, well, I haven't always been this cool because I haven't always played guitar. I started out on the cello. Yeah, the cello is a wonderful, beautiful instrument. It's a cool to be an adult that plays the cello. Being a kid that played the cello sucked. Because there's no way to be cool when your instrument is larger than you. When you walk to school with the cello, you're like a wounded gazelle on the Serengeti. Man. The bullies just smell you coming from a mile away. Ooh, I don't know what that thing is, but I know I'm going to break it. <laughs> But I put up with all of the abuse because I love the music that we played. I love everything we played in orchestra, except this. I hate Pachelbel's Canon in D with a passion. I hate it so much because the cello part is the worst cello part ever written in the history of cello parts. It's eight quarter notes that we repeated over and over again. They are as follows. D, A, B, F sharp, G, D, G, A. And that's all we got to play. We repeated those eight notes 54 times. I counted. Because I had nothing else to do. I would sit back and listen to the violins get lovely melodies. The violas would get lovely melodies. The second violins would get lovely melodies, which should just not happen. And the cello, we got stuck with eight crappy, lousy, stinking notes. And I began to wonder why. Why would Pachelbel do that to us? Such a beautiful instrument. And my theory was he once dated a cellist. And she dissed him really bad, and so for the rest of his life, he came up with the worst cello parts he could ever think of. It wouldn't be so bad if I didn't hear him every day. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Rob, don't listen to classical radio anymore. I, it doesn't matter. Pachelbel's following me. It sounds paranoid, but he's following you, too. You hear him every day. I don't know. I went to my step-nephew-in-law's eighth-grade graduation, and their graduation song was a song by Vitamin C. No. As we go on, we'll remember. So on the drive home, I turned on some classic rock, some Aerosmith. There was a time when I was so brokenhearted. So I got home, I thought I'd clear my mind with some folk music. No. Listen, children, to my story. It was written long ago. They do Pachelbel, just like everybody does Pachelbel, just to torment me. I don't even go to Taco Bell anymore because it sounds too close. I hate Pachelbel with a passion. I don't even know his first name. It's probably Johan. They're all named Johan. When you think about it, he's the original one-hit wonder. 
He had one hit 300 years ago. It's my cross to bear my entire life. Where are they now? That's what I want to know. Where are you now, Pachelbel? VH1's I Love the 1790s. Where is it? And if he would just stay away from music that I loved, it would be better, but he won't. He is shameless. He will follow me to the ends of the earth. I went to Horde Festival thinking, no, he couldn't possibly follow me to the Horde Festival. But you know who was at the Horde Festival? Blue Traveler. So that means that Pachelbel was also at the Horde Festival. So, suck it in, suck it in, suck it in. We're in Berlin or in Tintin. Make it a spread move and then you're in. So I figure I'm going to listen to punk rock for the rest of my life. No dice. Do you have the time to listen to me whine? You know I'm getting really bored Cause all songs have the same damn chords Punk music is a joke It's really just baroque Am I just paranoid? I wanna push you around, well I will, I will I wanna push you down, well I will, I wow It's been good living with you And my machine head is better than the rest My machine head is better than the See the stone set in her eye See the thorn twist in her I'm all out of faith, this is how I feel I'm calling I'm shame, lying naked on the floor He was a boy, she was a girl Could it be any more obvious we're not gonna take it No, we ain't gonna take it On your market set and go now Got a dream and we just know now No woman, no cry when I find myself in times of trouble, Pachelbel's always following me. I'll see you in hell, Pachelbel. Oh, Pachelbel, Pachelbel, I'll see your ass in hell. I'll see you in hell, Pachelbel. Thank you so much, Penn State. Enjoy the rest of That was Rob Paravonian, tormented by the mysteries of Pachelbel's canon. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you would like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or wild, passionate praise, if you'd like to broadcast a story on Diffusion and hear your own voice communicating science on radio, then send email to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Patrick Ruby, Mark West, Ian Wolfe, and myself, Aaron Cook. And Diffusion has been produced by Ian Wolfe in the studios of 2SCR Sydney and is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Aaron Cook. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wandering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.